0: Now to Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling the story that you're about to hear. And he said, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise rise from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So with this tickle in my throat, that was a bit of a journey to get through, but (laughs) this story has a pretty obvious overarching message that I think we can all pretty well recognize. If you are very comfortable, very well-to-do, and you are proud of your accomplishments and you're proud of what you have, and yet you can walk right past a suffering man that sits at your door just hoping for your scraps, then it may not end well for you one day. That, that's an obvious message right there. It's pretty plain. And I'm sure that Jesus' original hearers got it. I'm sure that we get it. For us to be extremely comfortable and extremely well-off and taking care of us and our own is, is something that we're proud of. It's something we achieve as a, as a sign of, of our, our uh, ability to provide for our families and those we care about and all of that. And, and yet, in this man's case, it seems like a worse problem. And really, the problem is, is, is ultimately the problem of sin. And really, from the very beginning... When sin changes things in the Garden of Eden, the problem is always a problem of being more committed to your self-interest than to the Lord. I mean, that's it. And in God's mind, in God's way of thinking, I, I can't tell you exactly what God thinks, but the Bible gives us a great deal of information about God's priorities. And it seems that if you are more focused on self than God more focused on self than others, you're sinning. I mean, you don't have to go deep into a bunch of, you know, long list of do's and don'ts and things like that. You just have to look at your attitude. And this is exactly what what, uh, Jesus is saying about these two men in this story. One's attitude was ripe for heaven, and another's attitude was ripe for hell. So one suffers in torment and eternal separation from God while the other rests comfortably in the presence of God. Now Jesus is very clever and very, very pointed in what he's saying here. So he's telling this story to Jews and he is really making some very, uh, uh, distinctive points here that are fun to explore, but but the overarching idea is, is that that everything that Pharisees and Sadducees and and uh, everything that uh, Herodian Jews, all of those people who he was talking to, who were from the Jewish uh, family, for the most part, they were all people who are pretty proud of their. State of being. They were pretty proud of their accomplishments. They were pretty proud of their belongings. They were pretty proud of their religious standing and their social uh, worth, you know. And, and Jesus is trying to drive home a couple of really important things to them. It's not the first time he does this, by the way, because you could think about this story in light of what he says about the Good Samaritan, right? We just talked about these boxes that we're sending to Samaritan's purse and the whole story is fascinating because Jesus is making a point that the people that are despised by those holier than thou sanctimonious Jews the Samaritans are more likely to get this sort of thing right than they are so the story of the good Samaritan is how he opens his purse and helps someone in trouble like Lazarus And so Jesus is making a very clear statement that if you can't care about the things that God cares most about, then you're probably headed for hell. Ouch. Now, as we move a little further into the study of this passage, I want to shift directions a little bit, but it's all tied together because he's also telling us a lot about the nature of life after death. And In our pursuit of others, you know, the seeking disciples part of our mission statement, this is probably the thing where we have the most potential to serve people who don't attend church or who don't trust that Christians have anything of particular value to them. Because religion is real handy when you're worried about death and dying. And that's probably why there will always be religion. Because religion is how we deal with the things that we can't control and the things we can't comprehend. And death is something we can't control and for the most part can't comprehend. And so religion gives us a way of processing all of that. And faith in Christ and in the Bible that God has given us so much news and knowledge from will give us an edge when we're trying to help people. So let's take a look at that. Jesus is talking to Jews, and he's talking to them in the context of their Bible. Their Bible at this time when this is happening is what we would refer to as the Old Testament now. But he hasn't introduced the New Testament yet. It hasn't come yet. The word testament is interchangeable with the word covenant in this case. In the Bible, we could say Old Covenant or New Covenant. When we go to the Lord's table, we're celebrating the new covenant. Jesus says in the Lord's table that this is a new covenant I'm making with you. And it fulfills the old covenant, but it also carries over certain critical elements of the old covenant. But under the old covenant, in what we would call the Old Testament, people who die went to a place they would call Sheol. In the New Testament, in the fact that Greek language was used to translate it, the New Testament word Hades is used to describe Sheol. And that's a very telling word because the word Hades literally translates Hades or Hades. And it's like a hyphenated word. And what it means is apart from God. So Hades is a place where you're apart from God. To put it more specifically, because Homer, the the famous Greek poet, used the word Hades, and it was to describe a helmet that made you invisible. The the helmet of Hades made you invisible. And so when they use this word Hades to describe where the rich man is suffering, what it means is he's invisible to God. God can't see him. Okay? Okay. Now, for us Christians and for those people we might share our faith with, this is an important concept because what it means is that when we live in sin, God can't see us. And you think, well, isn't that the point? You know, you don't want God to see you sinning. (laughs) But don't go there. Understand that there is so much that the world is depending on right now because God is involved that it's difficult for us to imagine a time when God isn't involved but I'll give you a hint if you dial up the book of Revelation and start reading that you find out what the world will be like when God's not involved okay but What it's driving at here is Jesus is trying to say that if you're completely devoted to your self-interests and you don't care about the poor and you don't care about those who are marginalized, that's what we're really getting at. Jesus cares about people on the margins of society more than the elite, rich, well-to-do Jews did, and so he's calling them out. And he's basically saying that that attitude will land you outside of a relationship with God. And now we can relate to this because many of us grew up practicing our faith and we grew up in a tradition of religion of one kind or another and many of those sorts of people may be as in trouble as this rich man because they've practiced the faith. They've practiced but they never got in the game. They never played in the big game. We practice, but we don't play in the reality that is the Christian life. And so being separated from God can happen even if you're really faithful to your religion. And that's a scary thought, but that's what Jesus is driving at in this story because he's talking to Jews. And he's saying not so much that helping the poor will land you in heaven, but that helping the poor is a sign of a better attitude. You get that? Because, because, I mean, honestly, if you give money to help people who have been victimized by the hurricanes, or you give money to help with Operation Christmas Child, or, or to help poor people, or marginalized people, you can do all of that and still be in the wrong frame of mind. You could do all of that and still be separated from God. To be united with God through Jesus is to feel the same heart and mind, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit, so that when you see people suffering, you're overcome with compassion. I had an experience like that a few weeks ago. I landed in a place you wouldn't expect your pastor to be, and it's a perfectly good story that you heard a couple of weeks ago. And all I could think of while I was in this place was how much I loved these people and wanted to teach them about Jesus. I mean, I just had this compassion for them. Well, if that isn't a gift from God, I don't know what it is because because every other instinct in me would have driven me out of the place. And so what is it that the good Samaritan does for the man who's been robbed and beaten to death or almost to death? What is it that causes some people to help Lazarus while he's laying there having his sores licked by dogs? What is it if it is not the love of God transmitted through people who love God? And so what separates you from God and lands you in a place of eternal separation from God is your attitude about yourself and others and about God. Now, regarding life after death, what Jesus is saying is in this Old Testament concept of Sheol or Hades, there is a place where you suffer, and there is a place where you are comforted, and there's a, ga- a chasm or a gap between them, and you can't cross that void. And that's important because as we try to tell people about the faith, one of the great tools that we're presented with is the cross as an image that bridges the gap between hell and heaven. And so when we're telling people, if you'd rather be in the place of comfort where Lazarus is, Jesus is your only hope because that's how your sins are forgiven in the new covenant. But it does indicate pretty clearly that God, through Jesus, has a plan for our eternal souls. So our bodies wear out, but we have eternal souls, and those souls can end up in a place of torment, or they could end up in a place of comfort. Now, I want to talk about the place of comfort for a minute, because I had an illustration given to me this morning by my granddaughter. Because she spent the night with us last night, and this was her first overnight stay at Grandma and Grandpa's, and she did very well. And this morning, early in the morning, she woke up, and Laura leaned over and took care of her and then dropped her in the bed between the two of us, and we all just sat there together for a little while early in the morning. And then the little booger climbed up on my chest and laid on my chest and just snuggled with me. Now, when I picture Lazarus At Abraham's bosom, that's what I picture. I mean, yeah, it warms your heart to think about a grandpa snuggling with his little baby daughter, granddaughter. But here's the thing. I sometimes wish that I could still be small and be held in the arms of some loving father like that. Or grandfather, right? But I'm big. And the best I can hope for is a nice hug. But one day... As Jesus has described it you could be even big getting just exactly what little Jane got from me this morning and from her grandma from her aunts and uncles and it's lots of hugs and cuddles and safety and and provision and protection and it's just such a great feeling this is this is what heaven I guess is because of what we read in Scripture and so then we have this picture of Sheol or Hades where you can either be in that comfor- comfortable place or you can be in that place of torment. So before we go any further, if you're wondering what happens when you die, then the scripture seems to give us a pretty clear picture. Your soul continues and you can be in a place of great comfort, a place Jesus called paradise or... You could be in a place of suffering. Now, Scripture also tells us that after the New Covenant, some things change and some things stay the same. And so we find that Jesus and the apostles frequently referred to death as sleep in the New Testament. Jesus, speaking of Jairus' daughter who had died before Jesus got there to heal her, He said, relax, she's just sleeping. I've got this. And then the Apostle Paul likewise describes in this passage that I think we should all commit to memory. He said this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep that you may be, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So when you die in Christ, you will be with the Lord. Although you might be asleep, I guess. I don't know what that means, but I'll give you an idea. I figure that it's good either way, okay? See, I want you to know that in my opinion, this is good either way. Maybe when we die, there is this whole experience like what I often refer to as as, uh, I tell you about this book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And that's a beautiful image of what it could be like. But it also could be that we sleep. Well, I didn't understand this until I'd had surgery, you know, because I hadn't had surgery since I was a little kid. And then several years ago, I had surgery on my neck, and that was the first time I'd been knocked out that way in a long, long while since I was a little kid. And since then, I've had some other surgeries because I'm old and brittle and things need repairs. But you know, it's funny how they'll tell you, okay, just, you know, breathe normally, and the next thing you know, you're waking up again. That's just how it is, right? You just, if you haven't had surgery, just take my word for it. When you go into a deep sleep like that, you don't remember anything. You remember the last thing, which is usually the mask that the anesthetist puts over your mouth and nose, and then you just remember someone saying, there you are, you know, and you're just here. Okay, so let's say it's like that. Then, then when you die, you go to sleep, and in an instant for you, The alarm's ringing, but it's actually the trumpet of the Lord blowing because you are getting ready to march behind him in the second coming. Sounds like it's a win either way, you know? So don't be afraid. God's got a plan, and the Bible has given us sufficient information to comfort us about that. The only thing that gives you discomfort is if you are outside of a relationship with God. You haven't accepted that the bridge to the relationship with God that guarantees you a great outcome when you die and when you are resurrected is to be separated by sin. So don't be separated by sin. Seek the Lord's redemption through Jesus Christ and don't be separated from God. Change your attitude with the help of the Holy Spirit from self-interest To God's interests and start feeling the warmth and compassion that God puts in you through His Holy Spirit that causes you not to neglect the marginalized and the hurting and the suffering. So, finally, you should know that when you die, there will be a day of judgment, and in that day of judgment, those who have been found innocent by Faith in Jesus Christ will live in a resurrected form that won't be ghost-like or mysterious, it won't be asleep, it won't be anything like that. It will be a physical existence as real, well, more real than this. And so you have nothing to fear. Matthew said uh, quoting Jesus in Matthew, when the son of man comes in his glory all the angels with him then he will sit in his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for i was hungry And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Because Jesus says, if you do it for the least of these, you're doing it for me. And so don't do these good deeds with a self-serving attitude or you've defeated the purpose. Do these good deeds because you just can't help it. And that becomes another act of worship that happens because you just can't help it. Remember this and carry this forward throughout your days and years ahead. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your spirit or your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. For his sake. Amen.